0: This was what it sounded like outside the chamber at the Tennessee House of Representatives. You ban books, you ban drag, kids are still in body bags. That was the scene at the Tennessee Capitol earlier today. Republicans in the state legislature voted to expel two Democratic representatives from the Tennessee House. They voted to kick two Democrats out of office. It was an unprecedented and it was a drastic move, and it all started last week. That is when hundreds of school students came to the Tennessee Capitol to call for new gun safety measures after a shooter opened fire at an elementary school in Nashville, killing three nine-year-old students and three adults. During that protest, a handful of Democratic lawmakers stood before the House chamber. They had megaphones, and they were not shy about standing in solidarity with the protesters outside, which was apparently a violation of the rules of the chamber. And Republicans pounced. They didn't have anything to say about the substance of the issue here, gun safety, but boy, did they have a lot to say about the megaphones and the protests. The Republican Speaker of the Tennessee House accused the three Democrats of inciting violence and then said their protest was, quote, at least equivalent, maybe worse, than the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Here he is speaking to a local Tennessee news
1: reporter. What's the evidence that they were trying to incite violence?
2: Well, they were trying to jazz people up when we have representatives. inside violence. Well, when we have representatives trying to go to the restroom, they got spit on.
1: Do you have any evidence that these three members were encouraging protesters to spit on members or troopers? I mean, you
2: can't prove that.
0: The Tennessee House has only purged lawmakers two times since the 1860s. And this time, today, Republicans held votes to expel three Democratic lawmakers in total, one who was a white woman. One, a black man, and one, a black and Filipino man. In the end, they voted against expelling white representative Gloria Johnson, but they voted in favor of expelling the two representatives of color, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Throughout the day, neither of the protesters nor any of those Democratic lawmakers lost sight of what all of this is really about.
3: We called for you all to ban assault weapons— and you respond with an assault on democracy. But you will not be victorious because there are generations of young people who see what is going on. You say to protest is wrong because you spoke out of turn. Because you spoke up for people who are marginalized. You spoke up for children who won't ever be able to speak again. You spoke up for parents who don't want to live in fear. You spoke up for for, for Larry Thorne, who was murdered by gun violence. You spoke up for people that we don't want to care about in a country built on people who speak out of turn, who spoke out of turn, who fought out of turn to build a nation.
0: Joining me now is New York Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. I I feel like you may help us understand this moment in in the way that it needs to be talked about. My first, just I would love to get your reaction to what has unfolded on airwaves across this country over the course of the last few hours.
2: So this is an expulsion because members of the Tennessee legislature stood up for our children and spoke out against gun violence because guns are the number one killer of children in our country. Nine-year-old children were killed. In Sandy Hook, six-year-old children were killed. Imagine going to the funeral and looking at the size of a nine-year-old casket
1: Mm.
2: or a six-year-old casket. Thank God for these Tennessee legislators for speaking up and pushing back against what's happening in Tennessee, but it's also happening around the country. Republicans are sacrificing the lives of our children in protection of the Second Amendment. If we can't protect our children, we don't have a democracy. Mm -hmm. Our democracy is broken, it's rotten, it's sickened, it's cancerous if we allow children to be killed. That's what's happening, and I'm glad to see the pushback they were expelled, but their expulsion is going to lead to the continued organizing and grassroots movement that's happening in Tennessee and across the country. Young people aren't standing for this. People of my generation aren't standing for this. It's time for a movement to transform America into what is capable of being.
0: I feel like it's almost generous to suggest that the reason Republicans are doing this is because of the Second Amendment, because I look at it and I think, well, maybe on its face, this is about the NRA and about gun rights. But it seems to be about something deeper. And race is absolutely what appears to be part of this, but also just naked partisan gain. Owning the libs, putting them in their place, the parallels that are being drawn between this and January 6th. It's like Republicans have been looking for a way to paper over what is such a heinous, Ugly chapter in their party's history, which is to say the January 6th insurrection. They're trying to draw a parallel with what's happening here to make themselves look less, less poisonous, less ugly. Yeah. And I, let, let's just first unpack the racial piece of it, because I, it is two lawmakers of color who are ejected from the legislature and a white woman who is, who is left in. <laughs> I, I think the answer may be obvious, but I, how do you read that?
2: Racism, uh, simply put, but another layer of the racial piece to this, as long as black and brown people are disproportionately killed by guns in our country, Republicans are OK with things as they are. This is a Republican Party, and this is not a sick ideology passed down from generation to generation. This is slavery, Jim Crow, the Ku Klux Klan, eugenics, the Second Amendment, the great replacement theory, Mm -hmm. right? It's all of that balled into this thing. So guns are the number one killer of children. Also, disproportionately, black and brown people are killed by guns Mm -hmm. in comparison. Domestic violence and gun violence is something that we have to talk about as well. Women being killed by their partners by guns. Republicans historically have been Against women's rights and, and women's civil liberties. You know, Roe v. Wade is. One, and and say, right? yes. Roe v. Wade is one example of that. So this is who they are. Another thing I want to mention is this. They can no longer win on the merits of their arguments. Yeah. They have no ideas. They have no vision for the present or future of our country. So they want to take us back to a time of continued oppression. And now that they're in super majorities and wherever they have power, they are going to be heavy handed with that power. Mm -hmm. So we have to be heavy handed with our resistance to that power. And the First Amendment is about peaceful assembly and speaking out, which is what those legislators did. But it has to. This democracy is hanging by a thread because of the previous president and obviously their party. We have to organize across this country. People believe in justice. An equality to take it back.
0: I mean, I, I watch that, and I think there are a lot of people in this country who will feel incensed, impassioned, angry, and motivated. Yes. If the point of all of this was to silence the men of color, the women of color, the progressives, the uppity folks who dare raise their hands and hold the megaphones— well, they got another thing coming to them. I mean, I just it really feels like this is an inflection point. This is a signal moment for people who care not just about gun safety, not just about representative democracy, but about the sort of big future of um, the American project, right? Like this is a big deal. And to try and pretend any, it's anything otherwise or that people aren't paying attention to this is a fool is foolish.
2: Completely foolish. But again, they have nothing else to go to. The only thing they can do is try to kick people out of a legislature because they have power. And this is why in 2024, in states across the country and at the federal level, in the Senate and the House, we have to vote these people out of office. Any candidate, Republican or Democrat, who doesn't want to do something on gun violence and something big like banning assault weapons, uh, expanded background checks, uh, training, whatever it is, we got to go big on this. They have to be voted out of office. I want to say one more quick thing. I want to see the Memphis Grizzlies refuse to play an NBA game because of what happened today.
0: Do you think that's going to happen?
2: I want it to happen because then you'll see movement. I want to see the University of Tennessee players who are mostly black refuse to play in a college football game. Start hitting Tennessee and Memphis in the pockets I guarantee you those Republicans will begin to behave differently.
0: I want to play a little bit of sound from uh, Justin Pearson, who is one of the legislators who was kicked out of office. This is uh, from the press conference that just happened. I know we had some audio problems in the last hour and some. He's been an incredible speaker throughout this saga. This is what he had to say. Let's take a listen.
3: It's always in the places and with the people who get pushed to the periphery, the people who get told to be quiet, the folks who get expelled the people who are pushed to the margins that show the society what it truly means to fight what it truly means to get to the center of the conversation to get to the issues that are at stake and sometimes that takes breaking a few decorum rules sometimes to get from the periphery in the back of the house you got to go to the well of democracy yeah. and demand that democracy be true for everybody yeah. and not just the rich white men in suits, yeah. not just the rich white people who got these positions of power perpetuating the status quo.
0: You know, there is a moment in American politics when, when the sort of, imp, you know, impassioned, incensed rhetoric from the, clearly the progressive wing of the party would have seen, you know, on the left side— I I feel like this is now the mainstream opinion in in the Democratic Party. And I wonder how, you know, have you talked to other folks in the Democratic caucus about what's happening in Tennessee? Is the feeling of anger shared across the spectrum of, of Democrats, from centrists to progressives?
2: Absolutely. It is shared. People are enraged at what's happening and what has been happening. When I had my engagement, my argument, if you will, with Representative Massey, People were texting me from the caucus saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for stepping up. My office couldn't stop receiving calls from all over the country because it's not just people in the House. It's people across the country who are like, finally, finally, no more thoughts and prayers. We need action. We need to see that someone is pissed off about this. And that's why we got that reaction. And so... You know, I love what he said about decorum there because I was criticized for my lack of decorum. Decorum? Children are being slaughtered by assault rifles. What do you mean decorum? Throughout American history, we have become better because of mass movements throughout our history. Because of moments like this that turned into mass movements. We need that right now because we still have tens of millions of people who don't consistently participate in our democracy. And we need everyone watching this, everyone on social media. Don't just tweet. You can do that. But you got to knock doors. You got to hand out flyers. You got to go to the church, the supermarket, the schools. You got to engage your neighbor. Introduce yourself. Talk about where we want this country to go. Our country. need. We have founding documents. You know, we have the, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. We need a document that paints the picture of a vision for America. Mm -hmm. We need a new document written by all of us, not just white property owning men.
0: Uh, It feels like on these two issues that we talk about consistently in the national news, abortion and gun rights, gun safety, whatever you want to call it, they are. Issues that Americans are fired up about, that they are sure. voting on, that they are talking about, and that more, I think, more urgently than anything, that they feel viscerally because they shudder to think of what a, a six-year-old's casket looks sure. like, right? They shudder to think about what would happen to their child who was forced to get an illegal abortion or were not or carry uh, a pregnancy to term that this person wasn't ready for. I mean, these are these are issues that that people feel in their souls, right? right. And Republicans, I want to say unwittingly, because it almost seems like political suicide, but they have made a calculated path to drive their party towards these two issues in particular, and be really on the wrong side of not only history, but where the public is at. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Democratic Party could literally exist on Only really, honestly, you could have a party that just focused on abortion and gun rights and you'd have 60, 70 percent of the country with you. That's right. Do you you sense any disagreement inside the Republican Party about where the GOP has landed on these two issues? Do you sense and moreover, do you sense any movement? Do you think that this is going to wake anybody up in Congress?
2: I think it will. I don't know about in Congress. I think it'll wake people up (laughs) around the country but I think that their heels are dug in on these two issues. You know, fight for the Second Amendment no matter what, and uh, you know, be against abortion. This, they're dug in on those issues. I would add one other issue to to the two you just mentioned: the issue of inequality. Sure. That's another issue uh, because people are struggling with poverty. People can't afford to They live. feel that viscerally. They can't well. afford housing. They can't afford to exist or breathe. Right. And so that is another issue. They're on the wrong side of all those issues. What I would also say is this Democrats. We have to look at the Tennessee three, look at them and be inspired by their leadership. Mm-hmm. And we need to do the same thing in state houses across the country and in Congress, because many of my colleagues I love them, but they're way too polite and they're way too focused on decorum and they're not as loud and they don't push back as hard as we need to push back on this issue and all of the other issues. We have to take back our country and be very loud in how we do that. When the people see us fighting, They'll come out and vote in the elections, the ones who are staying home, because they'll finally see, oh, my God, these people care about me and my child.
0: Yeah, I think that there are some people, um, when you talk about being too polite, who will say, getting louder, oh, what we need in American politics is for is for more you know, camaraderie. We need everybody to lower the volume. I mean, I would argue that Joe Biden, in some ways, was mm-hmm. the person who made that case yeah. running for, for office in, in 2020. And at the same time, I think it's really dangerous to suggest that the volume is for equal reasons, right? The volume on the right, the insurrection of the capital, the, the tendency towards uh, revolution has not anything to do with any particular principle. It has to do with power. That's it has right. to do with the loss of power, a loss of uh, relevance and and fundamentally a grievance, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening on the left. And I think it's probably... Really important for Democrats to make the case that the reason the megaphones are held aloft and the reason the volume's getting turned up is because you're talking about caskets and bodies and and survival, right? right. It's not about Donald Trump staying in office. Mm -hmm. It's not about being angry about demographic change. It's about survival. And how, I guess, as you know, you as a progressive, as you're out there and you see the right try and co opt. A lot of the, the energy, right, uh, from the left, how do you keep making that distinction that what you're doing is not the same as what they're doing?
2: Because we actually are trying to uphold the ideals of the Constitution. That's what we are trying to do. We are also paying attention to what the hell is going on in our districts. A 14-year-old kid was shot at 10.30 in the morning in the, ch- in the, morning in the chest and killed in my district in Mount Vernon. A 14-year-old, shortly after I got into office, OD'd on on opioids and died in another part of my district in Yonkers. A 17-year-old was shot in the head and killed outside of his high school in the Bronx in my district. Another 16-year-old was killed in New Rochelle by a ghost gun by, by someone who was 16 years old. That's the reality of America. It's not just in my district. It's all over the country. And there are many reasons for that. They claim to say, Republicans claim to say it's about the individual. Well, they ain't doing nothing to to help the individuals. They claim it's about fatherlessness and poverty. They're not doing nothing to address poverty. They claim it's about mental health. They ain't doing nothing to address mental health either. So they go to all these other reasons why we have gun violence. They're not doing nothing about that, nor are they doing anything about the assault weapons and, and other common sense gun control laws. Also, it's not just the NRA. There are big money actors in politics that influence legislation way too much that fund Democrats and Republicans. And that needs to stop. So people refer to me as a progressive. I'm just a regular person trying to fight for the rights of the people in my district. Yeah. Period. And when you poll these issues, whether it's healthcare, housing, education, climate, guns, Abortion, the majority of the American people are on our side with these issues. And so, again, this is a call to action for everyone who cares about justice and equality and wants to move forward with a politics of love for all people. That's what this is about.
0: I got to say, you know, those children who died were their children, too. Those Republicans, they were children. That's right. They were the children of the state. That was represented by Republicans and Democrats, and only one party is moving forward to make sure those deaths weren't in vain. Congressman Jamal Bowman, thank you so much for your time and for your work. We appreciate it. We are going to have more on all of this breaking news when we come back, and then later, new reporting that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has spent decades accepting luxury trips aboard private jets and super yachts, courtesy of a Republican megadonor, without disclosing any of it. That is ahead.
3: As you see, we'll demand it in the house, we'll get expelled for it too, and we'll demand it outside the house. Indeed, indeed, they have a terrible miscalculation.
0: That was ex-Tennessee State Representative Justin Pearson, who earlier today was expelled by Republicans in the Tennessee State Legislature. Joining us now is Jonathan Martin, Politico's Politics Bureau Chief and Senior Political Columnist. Um, Jonathan, what—this is— What on the outside really appears to be a catastrophe for Republicans, although inside the party, I'm not sure they necessarily see it like that. What are you hearing in terms of the governor's calculation movements on this and how Republicans in the legislature are looking at what's just happened?
4: Sure. Well, the, the bigger picture here on Tennessee is that increasingly this is a state that uh, is, is dominated by the Republican Party, uh, even though obviously its two biggest cities, Nashville and Memphis, are, are heavily Democratic. And because of that, the prelude to today was a series of, of uh, you know, contretemps, if you will, between the Republican-dominated state government and the more Democratic-dominated uh, city and county government. Government there in Nashville. The Republicans wanted their national convention, Alex, to be in Nashville in 2024. Well, guess what? The Nashville Democrats did not want a Trump dominated party having their convention in Nashville in 2024. So it's going elsewhere. So there's been sort of this kindling, if you will, going on for some time. But what I'm struck by tonight is the absence of Governor Bill Lee. I haven't heard anything from him today. I'm not sure if he's spoken out yet. But I'm a little surprised he's not been more uh, you know, forward-leaning, if you will, about trying to stand up and find some resolution. This is obviously not a good look for Tennessee, not for Nashville, which, as your viewers know, has been a really sort of hot city, a city on the rise, massive uh, influx of people moving there, a real destination. And obviously, today uh, is a real step back, both for Tennessee and for Nashville.
0: Yeah, I, we just had Congressman Jamal Bowman on the show at the top of the hour, and he he was suggesting, you know, this isn't just about Democrats in the state. This is about asking big business that uh, has a cough coff- that, that fills Tennessee's coffers to take a stand on this issue. This is about yeah. making it a national issue about bringing in, you know, hitting Tennessee Republicans where right. it hurts, which is in their pockets. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, I, yeah. go ahead.
4: Yeah, I was going to say, on that point, you know, uh, there's a history of that being especially effective. If you just look uh, a decade ago, for example, Alex, in North Carolina, the so-called bathroom bill, you know, where that really went aground for the GOP was when the business community, big players like Duke Energy in that state, stood up. And I think... It may take something similar in Tennessee. Uh, The corporate political players in Tennessee have a lot of clout, and if they get to Lee, get to some of the leaders of the General Assembly, I think you could see some movement here from the Republicans, but I think it would take a large uh, step from those corporate players, at least with Governor Lee. I think it's important to step back also, Alex, on the state of Tennessee. There's a sad irony to the fact that this is happening there. Of all the states in the South, it was the least politically polarized up until really a decade ago, up until roughly 2010. You had uh, a competitive two-party state. Uh, every eight years, for decades, effectively, the two parties would change the governorships back and forth. You had Lamar Alexander, and then you know Ned McWhorter, and then Don Sundquist, and then Phil Bredesen. Uh, and obviously uh, that was going back for decades. You had robust competition in the congressional delegation. You had basically a half and half GOP Democrat delegation in that state for a long time, up until really 2010. And um, you know, historically you had a very strong moderate wing of the GOP anchored in East Tennessee. People like Lamar Alexander and Bill Haslam uh, from that corner of state, Howard Baker from that corner of the state. And you had a robust conservative Democratic wing in the western part of the state. Well, guess what? It's all nationalized. It's all polarized now. It's a red state and the Republican Party in that state is a deeply conservative state. You're seeing that play out today. But I can tell you from talking to folks today in Nashville, uh, it's sadly ironic that it's happening there because they did not know this kind of politics. In their state, up until really ten years ago.
0: Yeah, well, I would I would argue that you know something happened in 2016 that certainly radicalized at least one of the parties. You know, just in terms of Bill Lee's movements here, the only Republican governor to stand up to business when it takes an issue a stand on social issues is Ron DeSantis and Disney. That has not. I mean, nationally, it has not looked that great for Ron DeSantis. And I wonder the degree to which you think other Republican governors are looking yeah. at his example and saying, uh yeah, that's not my the play I'm gonna run.
4: Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's state by state. I think some of them uh, believe the populism that, that, that they talk about, Alex, and, and others spout it, but don't actually believe it. And we'll see here in the days to come with Governor Bill Lee. Uh, if this thing does continue to spiral, uh, you can be assured people like FedEx, based in Memphis, uh, other corporate titans will speak up. They will get to Governor Lee. They will talk to leaders of the General Assembly and we'll see how they respond. Uh, it'll be a fascinating test for the the forces of populism versus the traditional corporate benefactors in the party if this thing does keep going sideways in Tennessee.
0: Jonathan Martin, always good to see you. Thank you for your uh, wisdom and history on on the—well, recent history uh, in terms of Tennessee politics. Very, very grateful for your time. Thanks,
4: Alex. Coming
0: up, how President Trump and his allies are weaponizing his indictment and what Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg had to say about all those threats today. Also, it turns out Supreme Court Justice Thomas has a taste for the yacht life. But who has been financing it? That story is coming up. In his 1987 cult classic, The Art of the Deal, Donald Trump concluded that controversy sells. Take anything, make it a controversy, and profit off of it. On the one hand, Trump uses controversy for financial gain. He monetizes it. He's reportedly raised over $12 million fundraising off of news of his indictment and his arrest. And Trump is using controversy to gain political traction, making it into a weapon he can wield, in this case against the very prosecutors who are investigating him. Trump has called Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg a degenerate psychopath and called the prosecutors in Bragg's office scum. He posted a photo that shows Trump wielding a baseball bat at the DA who he has repeatedly called a racist. He's gone after Bragg's. sorry, he's gone after the judge's family and he has warned that the charges levied against him could bring death and destruction. This is all very serious stuff. Enough so that at Tuesday's arraignment one of the first things the Manhattan prosecutor brought up was that onslaught of Trump of threats coming from Trump. The prosecutor said, quote, over the past several weeks and longer, this defendant has made a series of threatening and escalating communications on social media and on other public remarks. These comments and posts have led to extensive public safety measures being put into place by a number of law enforcement agencies around the city, including here at the courthouse starting several weeks ago. The judge warned Trump not to make any statements that would incite violence, no threats or attacks, and said that he would take a closer look if the conduct continued. And in response, less than six hours after his appearance in court and the judge's warning, Trump called Bragg a criminal who should be prosecuted or at a minimum resign. He then attacked Bragg's wife and the prosecutors on the case again. NBC News reports that just 24 hours after Tuesday's arraignment, the judge and his family have received threats. The environment has gotten so bad that online biographies of prosecutors on the DA's website, those those biographies have been taken down. The NYPD has added extra security at the DA's Manhattan office. But it's not just Alvin Bragg here. After his arraignment on Tuesday, Trump went after DOJ Special Counsel Jack Smith and Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. Trump called Smith a radical left lunatic known as a bomb thrower, and he called Fonnie Willis a racist. Last night, Fonnie Willis responded.
3: Willis told Channel 2's Mark Winnie that Trump has a right to speak his
5: mind. And so the comment does not concern me at all. Um, It's ridiculous in nature, but I support his right to be protected by the First Amendment and say what he likes.
3: While she supports Trump's right to speak freely, she did warn him. Not to cross the line.
5: People have the right to say whatever they choose to say, as long as it does not rise to the level of threats against myself, against my staff,
3: or against my family.
0: Trump isn't alone in attempting to weaponize the justice system for his own political gain. The former president's supporters in Congress are taking note. In March, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced he was ordering a probe into the Manhattan DA's prosecution of Trump, accusing Bragg of an outrageous abuse of power and demanding Bragg's testimony in a House investigation. Bragg refused and called it an unlawful incursion into New York sovereignty. But today, House Republicans took their crusade to the next level when the House Judiciary Committee fired off its very first subpoena in their so-called investigation into DA Bragg. Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan subpoenaed a former prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office named Mark Pomerantz, who resigned from the office after disagreements with DA Bragg last year. Bragg, in response to the subpoena, has called the so-called investigation an unprecedented campaign of harassment and intimidation. Joining us now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and, of course, an MSNBC legal analyst and someone who is literally the voice of this, this whole series of sagas for us um, on this channel. Andrew, I, first, let's just talk about the nature of these threats and how unprecedented this is. I mean, you know what it's like to prosecute the Gambino crime family.
5: Yes. And, and I have reported that if you're prosecuting the Gambino family, the Genovese family, the Colombo family, all cases I've done, in the mob, there is a rule. You do not go after judges. You do not go after prosecutors. You do not go after their families. Why? Not because they're good people that you know this is they don't don't think that's a good thing to do. It's bad business to go after agents and prosecutors and judges. is only going to lead to sort of more scrutiny on what they're doing. Um, plus, you know what? I mean, I have a big ego, but you know what? I'm fungible. So you know, if you take out one prosecutor, just another one's going to another come one's going to pop up. Exactly. Um, the idea that this is the former president of the United States, where there was a serious discussion in court with a respected judge uh, having to address this issue. He led the free world He was the head of our Justice Department. And there in court is the issue of his inciting violence. And just to be clear, I mean, we're talking about an investigation about January 6th. That is a call and response. He knows exactly what he's doing. And if he didn't know on January 6th, which of course he did, he knows now. right? I mean, we're we're in a situation where there's a complete history. So he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, It's going to be incumbent on the DA, who I think is completely fearless in the way that he's handled this, Um, and the judge, who I think is also going to engage in sort of what is clearly sort of incremental steps of warning him and then seeing what Donald Trump does if he actually knows to adhere to these rules. But this is a first for for Donald Trump. He is doing what he needs to do politically, Mm -hmm. but now he has to account in a court of law.
0: What what are the practical implications for the actual trial, though, if he continues on this path of of trying to weaponize his supporters against the judge, maybe taint the jury pool? I mean, what can he? beyond so, the political price he might have to pay for it, what can he practically do from a judicial standpoint?
5: So, you know, this is one where, in one way, we don't have to actually speculate because um, the judge, uh, Judge Kaplan, who is overseeing the E. Jean Carroll case, where there is a civil case involving rape allegations at the end of this month, The judge in that case, or again, a respected federal judge, said we're going to anonymize and protect the jury. And that was prescient. That was before what we saw happen at the arraignment. Um, And again, that's a connection with the former sitting president of the United States. You have to have an anonymous jury. You know when you have an anonymous jury? In mob cases. Um, where you're thinking that not that they're going to kill a juror, but they're going to try and corrupt the jury. But here, that sort of intimidation factor is exactly what led Judge Kaplan to say, this is what we need to do. Um, there can be other steps. Obviously, if Donald Trump goes further and he does incite, and he, as I think Fannie Willis was getting to, there are actual charges that the district attorney can bring yeah. for incitement, for um, harassment, for obstructing governmental investigations, all of those are criminal matters. So that he could face additional criminal charges. And then obviously, you know, there's steps of what he restricting what he can say if he is going to continue doing that. That happened with Roger Stone uh, in a federal case.
0: What about the House investigation? I mean, how does that complicate matters? Because Alvin Bragg is now under pressure from another branch of uh, for, well, from from the legislative branch. Right. And that that's then infuriating Inter- interfering with what he's trying to do.
5: Absolutely. But there's a part of me that when I heard that today, I was thinking um, Jim Jordan is going to have another sort of, uh, you know, dud on his hands because so far that has really backfired for him. Yeah, Putting Mark Pomerantz, who was used to lead this case um, in front of the American people, we know what he's going to say because he wrote a book. The book was unauthorized. Um, it's just his version. There have been some controversy about whether it's accurate or not. But this is what he says in his book. Donald Trump is guilty and he should have been prosecuted long ago. (laughs) The
0: picture doesn't get better for Trump. He should have been prosecuted
5: for more than what he's been prosecuted for. That's going to be a very odd thing for a Republican to elicit um, to the American people. So there was a part of me that was like, I mean, bring it on. Now, I don't I don't think this subpoena is actually enforceable in this context because there is an ongoing investigation, but it's one where. It's, it's, it's one of those things where be careful what you wish for. Right.
0: Or or cutting off your nose to spite your face. Whenever, I mean, right? we, can, like, we can add like, all of our... We're prove right. how innocent Trump is by bringing in someone who thinks he's really guilty for even bigger crimes. Exactly. Okay, good luck, Jim Jordan. Andrew Weissman, Sorry, it is always good to see you. Thank you for nice your wisdom, you. as always. Up next, Clarence Thomas's love of private jets and luxury yachts is coming under scrutiny particularly when someone else is picking up the tab. We are going to explore all of that with the New Yorker's Jane Mayer. That's next. On June 27, 2019, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas finished out that year's term by ruling that partisan gerrymandering was totally fine. And with that, wrapped up by the weekend, he was in full vacation mode. He hopped on a private jet and headed off to Indonesia. Judge Thomas and his wife set off on a nine-day island hopping tour on this superyacht, which comes complete with a staff and a private chef. ProPublica did the math and calculated that had Justice Thomas paid for the trip himself, it would have cost him more than $500,000, which is nearly double a Supreme Court justice's annual salary. But lucky for Justice Thomas, he didn't have to foot the bill because this man did. This is billionaire real estate magnate and Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow. He owned the jet and the yacht, and he picked up that very hefty tab. And Justice Thomas didn't tell anyone. He never disclosed it. But justices are required to publicly report all gifts worth more than $415, quote, anything of value that isn't fully reimbursed. Back in 2001, Thomas actually did disclose a gift that this Republican billionaire mega-donor Mr. Harlan Crow had given him. It was a Bible that used to belong to Frederick Douglass and was valued at $19,000. So clearly, Justice Thomas knows he is supposed to disclose this sort of thing, particularly when it comes to gifts from this guy, because this isn't the first time Mr. Crow's generosity towards Thomas has been a scandal. Mr. Crow also gave at least half a million dollars to help Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas start a conservative lobbying group, a group that then turned around and paid Ginny Thomas a salary of one hundred and twenty thousand dollars and later evolved into Ginny Thomas's current group, which reportedly works with groups directly involved in controversial cases before the Supreme Court. Harlan Crow also gave more than one hundred thousand dollars to the Yale Law Clarence Thomas Portrait Fund, which is, I don't know, quite a bit of money for a fund that maybe doesn't really need to exist. But today, ProPublica made all of that look like change, Trump change, because it wasn't just that one undisclosed $500,000 vacation that ProPublica uncovered. They report that for more than two decades, two decades, Clarence Thomas has accepted luxury trips virtually every year from Mr. Crow without disclosing them. Joining us now is Jane Mayer. She is the chief Washington correspondent for The New Yorker and the author, of course, of Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Jane, it's great to see you. Um, there's no better person to talk to you about this. Thanks for being here tonight. Um, let me just let me just first start with the the, the reporting from ProPublica today. Is this an open secret among people who report on the court and are other justices doing things like this?
1: Well, I mean, the problem with this story um, is that because it shows that something was not disclosed it's very hard to know what else is not being disclosed um I think what it does is it highlights that there are huge loopholes in the ethics rules for the Supreme Court justices they you know notoriously have the weakest ethics code in um, of all the courts in the United States so we really don't know what else we don't know but it was a I uh, you know I think it's a it's a shocking and maybe you know falls into that category of shocking and not necessarily that surprising story, because we know that in the past, Clarence Thomas has been exposed as having taken other gifts of um, and and personal sort of hospitality from this same billionaire benefactor, Harlan Crowe. The New York Times did a story on it in 2011. And at that time, it was also jaw dropping. Yet here we are all these years later. And there's this much more. I mean, it, it really is. It's just kind of an unbelievable situation for a, the highest court in the land that is supposed to look independent. And here you have one justice taking all of this from I mean, millions of dollars, probably worth of gifts um, and travel and vacations from one benefactor who happens to be someone who's very much involved in Republican politics and conservative policy circles.
0: Yeah, that's the other piece of it. There's just the ethics violation of not disclosing sums that are vastly, vastly greater than $415. But then there's also Harlan Crowe, who's a real estate magnate, who has been invested in organizations that are very much trying to push the court further and further right. I mean, that, that's the other piece of this that I think is, is, Alarming. Uh, there's a painting that is featured in one of Harlan Crow's residences. I think we have a picture of it, and it's 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 something that hangs in plain sight, apparently, that features Justice Thomas sitting around smoking cigars with Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo, who of course is the the mocker behind the Federalist Society and other sort of uh, big conservative movers and shakers, if you will. Now, when we talk about cronyism, the idea it's not a smoke filled back room; it's a smoke filled deck. Out in the Adirondacks, but the 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 sort of suggestion that this is how it all works is made clear. This does look how it like how it all works when it comes to certain Supreme Court justices. Do you think there is going to be any any sort of alarm bells ringing inside the court, specifically in Justice Roberts' ears, the Chief Justice of the Court, who's intent on restoring the reputation of the the Supreme Court?
1: I mean, I think there has to be concern. It, but for among, the you know, by the chief justice and by the other justices, because we've all seen that there are public opinion polls that show that there has never been lower support for the U.S. Supreme Court. The public is losing confidence in it. And this is exactly why um, stories like this that expose sort of a, a lack of integrity and uh, ethical um, you know, lapses on this order. I mean, it's really unthinkable. And, and the story, I mean, ProPublica did a fantastic reporting job in the story. I recommend anybody read the piece. It's so thorough, but it quotes other judges and former judges saying, this is just unthinkable. Uh, you just, nobody, I mean, and I think. From a common sense point of view, you can see why it's unthinkable. Nobody takes this much stuff from one person without being beholden to them. I mean, there's, you know, even one trip, as you mentioned before, is, is worth a half a million dollars that, that Justice Thomas and his wife took, uh, in 2019. And they've been doing this for two decades. It is
0: a shocking, it is, as you say, great reporting, specific reporting, dogged reporting, tracking of private planes and getting inside scoops from yacht employees. I mean, everyone must read this. It is deeply, deeply distressing. Chief Washington correspondent for The New Yorker, the great Jane Mayer. Thanks for your time tonight, Jane. Thank you. That's our show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.